Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. As we open up Matthew chapter 25, we find ourselves right in the middle of Jesus' last long teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. This is actually one of the literary structures of how this gospel works. Matthew gives us five long chunks of Jesus' teaching through the gospel. The very first one is that Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Then there are several others. And the last long teaching that Jesus gives us before his crucifixion and resurrection is here in Matthew 24 and 25. It's what we sometimes call the Olivet Discourse because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives talking with his disciples, answering their question. And so you may remember the question that the disciples asked. They want to know what things are going to look like just before the end of the world. So they asked Jesus, what is the sign of your coming back and of the end of the age? And what Jesus does in these two chapters is he answers that question at length. He talks about what kinds of things are and are not signs of his coming and of the end of the age. And then most interestingly, I think, he talks about how you and I should now live because the end of the age is coming. So in chapter 25, Jesus wraps up this conversation with three teachings inside of this chapter. And the first is this. It's a parable about 10 young women, a parable of 10 virgins who are invited to be a part of a wedding party. Five of them are wise and five of them are foolish. The second thing that Jesus does is he tells us a parable about stewardship. Inside of your Bibles, there's probably a little section heading that says something like the parable of the talents. Well, it's a parable about stewardship, what we do with what God has given us. And inside of that parable, three servants are given responsibility. Two of them are wise and one of them is foolish. Then the third section inside of this chapter is actually a description of the final judgment. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with his angels, this is what is going to happen. And it is a profoundly dramatic moment And as we read it through, not only are we surprised by the drama of the moment, but the people in the story are surprised by how the moment unfolds. But when we get a glimpse into the day of judgment and the end of the age, as we've been talking about, it actually gives us insight into what it means for us to live as his children until Jesus comes. So guys, this is to me critical to understanding what Jesus does here. To wrap up his answer to the disciples about what the signs of the end of the age are going to be, what Jesus wants to drive home is how you and I are going to live until he comes. That's more than half of Jesus's answer to the question, what headline should I look for in the newspaper to know that the end of the age has actually shown up? What's the uh, international political stage going to look like just before you come? Even more than that, Jesus wants us to know how to live. So as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see a couple of things. We wait and we work. We wait and we work. When we use that word waiting, we are often thinking of the wrong kind of thing. Waiting for the coming of Jesus Christ may not be exactly what you think of when you think of just waiting. 
We're learning as followers of Christ to wait well. So we wait, and then we work. And when we talk about working, we may be talking about something that maybe we don't always think about. It may not be what we think of. So we learn to wait well, and we learn to work well until Jesus comes. So let's begin reading chapter 25, verse 1. Christ continues his teaching by telling us this parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We're going to break up chapter 25 into three sections, these three stories that we're talking about. We'll deal with the first one, the parable of the ten virgins. Then we're going to skip the second, and we're going to go to the third, the description of the end of the age. And then to put it all together, we're going to come back to the middle section, the parable of the talents, or the story about stewardship that Jesus gives us. But at the beginning of the chapter, it begins like this. The kingdom of heaven is going to be like. Now, this is common inside of Matthew's parables. It's been a little while since we've read one of Jesus' parables inside of Matthew's gospel. But more often than not, Jesus begins that parable by saying something like, the kingdom of heaven is like this, or life with God is a little bit like this. So when God has his way and when we are living with God, this is what things are going to look like. And so when we read that, the kingdom of heaven is like this, we we want to understand what this means, what this story is, so that then we can draw from that back into our relationship with God and what that is actually going to look like. And so the kingdom of heaven will be like, and he tells this story of these 10 virgins, these 10 bridesmaids who are coming to be a part of the wedding. So these 10 bridesmaids, they bring their lamps to meet the groom at a wedding feast or at a wedding party. Now, as we begin the topic of how the parable works and and, uh, the, the bride and the groom and how a wedding party works, we need to know this, that Scripture quite often talks about our relationship with Christ in terms of a bride and a groom and a wedding feast. Christ is the groom, the church is his bride. We prepare ourselves for his coming. We are looking forward to the day when we are put together with him for all of eternity. So scripture will use this imagery. Paul will use it in his epistles. John will talk about this imagery inside of the book of Revelation. But scripture will use the image of a wedding 
to talk about the final and the eternal union of Christ with his people. We are his bride preparing for his coming, and Christ is the groom. So on one level, this this parable is fairly transparent. It's speaking to the people of God quite clearly. Be ready for the coming of the groom. Christ is coming. This is how Jesus finishes the story. Watch out. Be alert. You don't know when, but the master, the groom, is coming. As he uses this image of the wedding inside of this parable, um, the story itself, the way people would have understood weddings helps us to kind of, I think, get a feel for what's going on here. Wedding ceremonies um, that you and I go through are often a day, half a day long, and those can sometimes get pretty long when you're inside of one of those wedding parties, right? But in Jesus's day and age, a wedding party, a wedding ceremony would last five, six, seven days long. And as the bride would gather her bridesmaids, her part of the wedding party, they would gather at her house or near her house because on one given day, the groom and his part of the wedding party would finally at some point process from the groom's home through the streets of the village to the bride's home. And then they would begin the wedding ceremony there in the bride's home. And then after nightfall, the entire wedding party would march from the bride's home back to the groom's home to continue the wedding ceremony for four or five, six more days until the wedding ceremony was done. So to be asked to be part of a wedding party was a big deal. It was an honor. It was a privilege. It was also something you had to come prepared for. And so these 10 bridesmaids have shown up with their lamps or with their torches, these things that are running on oil, but they don't know when the groom is going to come. The bridesmaids, as they've come, they need to be ready for the groom to show up and to begin the wedding feast. The text tells us that the 10 bridesmaids, they wait longer than they expected. The the groom was delayed in his coming, so much so that they all fall asleep. And then, and I love this image in Scripture, at the midnight hour, the call goes out. The groom has come. Make yourselves ready to enter into the wedding feast. And all of them are shocked at that moment, but five of them are ready. So they trim their lamps, they get their torches ready to go again. Five of them have oil. They're able to do that, so they're ready for the rest of the procession, the rest of the evening, the rest of the week, and five of them are not. Waiting for God sometimes is hard to do. If you have not experienced that in your walk with Christ, you will experience that in your walk with Christ. It's difficult to do, to wait, because the groom is delayed. We think God is going to solve a situation or he's going to show up in a certain kind of way or we're asking him in faith to do a certain kind of thing and it's just not happening when we expect it to happen or want it to happen or feel like we need it to happen. And so one of the things that we learn in our walk with Jesus Christ is to wait on him and to wait in eager anticipation and to wait in preparedness for the coming of the groom. When God decides to show up, we have to be ready. But what happens in our waiting is that we grow slothful. And when the moment comes, Christ warns us, we may actually not be 
ready. So the five foolish bridesmaids, they're not ready, and they appeal. I like this part of the story. They appeal to the other five, but the other five say, I can't give you any of what I have. You should have brought more. So go and get yourselves ready. Find who you can buy this from and and come back. But then in the end, those five foolish bridesmaids are shut out of the wedding. The door is shut, and the groom says, I never knew you. This actually becomes a dramatic piece of chapter 25. That issue is repeated three different times inside of this chapter. It is so important to Jesus Christ to get this image into the hearts and minds and lives of his disciples that he says it over and over and over. There's going to come a point where the decisions are done and all of eternity is set. There's going to come a point where all decisions are done and eternity will be set by the groom himself. There will be those who are inside of the wedding feast and there will be those who are outside of the wedding feast and the door is shut. So Jesus tells his disciples to finish this, this little parable. He tells us, so be alert. Watch, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. As Jesus tells this parable, what he is doing is he's actually telling a story to emphasize one of the last points that showed up in chapter 24. If you read these two chapters without chapter breaks or section headings, you would feel like this is just a continuation of what Jesus has just said. The disciples wanted to know the signs of the age, when Jesus was going to come back. Jesus wants them to live well until he comes because we don't know when he's going to come. Remember what Jesus says in chapter 24, verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son. I don't know. Isn't that amazing? But the Father only. And we move down to chapter 24, verse 42. Therefore, so here's what I want you to do. Stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. So we're learning a lesson that is sometimes hard for us to learn, and it is often hard for us to live out. To be prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ, we need to learn to wait well. And again, when we think about waiting for Christ, when we think about just waiting for anything, We often have these images in our head of these long, interminable periods of time, and we just don't know when it's going to come to an end. Waiting on Christ is not like waiting at the DMV. Waiting for Christ is not like standing in the longest line at the grocery store, which is what I seem to pick every single time. You just wait and wait, and they won't stop talking, and you just wait, and you just wait. Waiting on Christ is an active waiting. Waiting on Christ involves participation with him and what he is doing now. Waiting on Christ is actually eager expectation, looking for the day of the Lord. Waiting for Christ drives us deeper into relationship with him. The wise follower of Jesus Christ desperately maintains their relationship with him 
every day of their lives. This is how the people of God wait. You see, the foolish bridesmaids who waited, they just didn't prepare. The wise bridesmaids, they were ready. They were prepared. So the wise people of God maintain their relationship with him. The wise people of God don't allow that relationship to grow slack or to grow cold. The wise people of God maintain their relationship with him in prayer. They maintain their relationship in the word of God. They maintain their relationship with the church and with the people of God because, friends, we are at the door waiting for the groom to come and we don't know when he is going to come. And the wise people of God who are prepared for him cannot be surprised at his coming. That's part of the story here. We're ready. He can come at any moment because we've pressed in in our relationship with Christ. And notice this as well. This is so important in this passage. The foolish bridesmaids cannot enter in on the preparation of the other bridesmaids. The foolish disciple, to use these kinds of terms, cannot enter in by grabbing onto the coattails of someone else who's on their way into the kingdom of God. I cannot rely on my pastor's relationship with Jesus. I cannot rely on my spouse's relationship with Jesus. I cannot rely on my parents' or my grandparents' relationship with Jesus. It comes down to how you and I individually are prepared for the coming of Christ. It comes down to that individual relationship with Jesus between every single one of us. I can't make it in on the faith of someone else. Neither can you. So the wise disciple of Christ maintains their relationship and eagerly anticipates the coming of the groom. Well, as we have these thoughts in mind, let's skip now down to verse 31 of chapter 25. And we're going to read part of Christ's description of what will happen at that moment when he, the Son of Man, arrives. Chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus now teaches not just about the moment when the Son of Man arrives. What will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age is the question he's answering. This is the moment of his coming. This is the moment of the end of the age. This is the moment of the final judgment for all of humanity. And that's exactly what the text tells us. The Son of Man with his angels has come in his glory, and the Son of Man, Christ, will sit on his throne. And it's a throne of reigning, and it's a throne of judgment over all of humanity as well. And in fact, that's what happens here. All of humanity is gathered before him. I think it's hard for us to imagine exactly what that means. 
That doesn't mean that if Jesus shows up tomorrow, roughly seven billion people are going to stand before him. Remember this little truth about the human soul. No human being who has ever come into existence has ever disappeared from existence. Every human soul is still alive. So when we say all of humanity, we mean all of humanity stands before Christ. And what Christ will do is he will separate all of humanity for all of eternity. And Jesus does talk in terms of eternity several times in this section of chapter 25, both eternal punishment and eternal life. So it sounds almost trite to say, guys, this is really important. I don't know how else to put it. Maybe I could scream and yell it, but I think that would just annoy you. This is important. Life with Jesus Christ is consequential. It literally has eternal consequences. So all of humanity has been gathered before Christ. He separates them on his right and his left. And he speaks to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God has prepared his eternity for his children from eternity past. Isn't that beautiful? In verse 35, the story continues. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. And I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Imagine what humanity is seeing as the Son of Man in all of his glory is sitting on his throne. And in that moment, he says, when I was in this condition, you took care of me. And the eyes that see that glorious, eternal God upon his throne are going to say, I've never seen this before. (laughs) I've never seen you here or here or here. And so what the Son of Man, what Jesus says next, is just stunning to us. And the king will answer in verse 40, it says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This intense, intimate relationship that Christ has placed upon himself with humanity for all of eternity is profound. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer to them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous into eternal life. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, it says all of the nations will be gathered before him. The word nations here in the English, it gives us a sense of geographical boundaries, legal boundaries, squabbles between neighboring nations. The word that Jesus uses is ethnos. Every ethnicity, every type of human being is going to show up before me. So it's not limited by these physical boundaries, but it speaks of literally every kind of human person. They will come before Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, because only Christ has the right and the power to judge every human soul. As much as that truth is difficult, even for a Christian sometimes to swallow, that there's eternal judgment for those who reject Christ. And it is, a, it is certainly a difficult truth for those who reject the Christian faith to believe at all that anyone has this kind of power and ability over the eternal human soul. It's just true that Christ, the creator of all things, including this human soul, is the one who has the right and the power to make this call over the eternal destiny of each and every human soul. So they're separated, the sheep and the goats. Sometimes folks will dig into that and try to make something of the sheep and the, goat, sheep and the goats. That's a little bit hard to do based on Scripture, but what Jesus says is about as straightforward as it is, just as a shepherd would. And in Jesus' day and age, this is how a shepherd would deal with his sheep and goats at night. He would separate them because overnight you'd have to take care of goats one way and overnight you'd have to take care of sheep another way. So he's just grabbing something that's common to them. Shepherds do this all the time. So the one great shepherd is going to do this once and for all at the end of the age. One group inherits the kingdom of God. And the Son of Man tells them that they have taken care of him. Isn't that incredible? As they've done these things to the least of these, they've taken care of him. It's so incredible that those who hear it are surprised by it. How did we do this? Now, it's important for us to understand what Jesus says in this passage In the context of the rest of Scripture, we need to be very careful not to conclude some form of works righteousness, that if we become do-gooders and we just do really good things, if we do more good things than we do bad things, then we're going to make our way into heaven because isn't that what Jesus says? It's a very common way for people to misunderstand how relationship with God actually works. And it often sounds a little bit like this, I do more good than I do bad. I know I am certainly better than that person over there, so certainly I'm going to make it into eternity with God because they're not and they're even worse than I am. Scripture does not teach that kind of works righteousness. What Scripture teaches is that these are lives. The people that Jesus talks to, the righteous, Scripture calls them These are lives that were lived out as people who loved the world the way Christ loved the world. When we see this list here, what we are seeing, what Christ describes, is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of people. You see, Scripture teaches us this about relationship with God. We are saved by grace, not by our works, 
but we are saved for the kind of life that God wants us to lead. And I want to read that passage from Ephesians chapter 2 to make sure that we hear it well. In Ephesians chapter 2, hopefully this is a fairly familiar passage. Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. I cannot work my way into moral perfection. I cannot work my way into salvation. But, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the list of the works that are done here are beautiful and profound and they're evidence of the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit in the lives of his children. And it's stunning that Jesus Christ shares this deep identity with humanity. At Christmas time, we celebrate the incarnation of Jesus Christ and that is maybe a, a deeper and more profound truth than we will often realize. That, that glorious Son of Man and all of his authority and power and glory entered this world the same way that you and I entered this world. That he was born in flesh and that he has this profound intimacy with you and me, creatures like us, humans. More than that, Jesus calls them here in this passage the least of these. Those kinds of individuals that we are tempted to ignore, carry as much value with Christ as anyone else. I love this phrase, the least of these, and the list that Christ gives us in that passage. That phrase, the least of these, can mean the least in size, smallest, most vulnerable among us. What have you done to take care of them? And quite frankly, friends, the smallest, most vulnerable members of our society are those that we tend to hunt down and kill the most, children inside of their mother's womb. It can mean the least in size. It can mean the least of importance, the least of those on the structure of social and economic power. Those that we, with our human eyes and inside of our normal human structures, are tempted to just glance right over, walk right over, ignore. Christ says, when you loved them the way I love them, you've done this for me. You see, followers of Jesus Christ are learning to see this world through the eyes of their heavenly Father through the eyes of Jesus Christ. This is evidence of people who love the world the way Christ loves the world. So we learn to value people in this way, to see human beings in this way. This week, Heather and I had the, um, uh, the privilege to spend some time getting a, a tour of Springs Rescue Mission, what Springs Rescue Mission does. And actually, it's, it's quite phenomenal what happens down there. It's incredible what they do. And they and why they do it, and they do it well, and they do it because they love Jesus. And you see, I was working through this passage this week, and so as we're standing there and we're, we're talking and we look out in this courtyard, 
It's easy to think that through the eyes of the world, what stands in this courtyard is just the least of these. But because people love Jesus Christ, they're doing what they can for people who otherwise would be looked over. Another magnificent ministry here in town is called Life Network. And it's not just pregnancy centers, but it's supportive mothers who find themselves in complicated situations, guys who suddenly find themselves as dads. It's post-birth support. It's post-abortion support. It's education in high schools. It's this whole broad work of ministry in this town because people love Jesus Christ and they're learning to see the world through the eyes of Jesus Christ. If you've done it for the least of these, You've done it for me. The sheep on his right enter into his kingdom. The kingdom that's been prepared for the people of God from the beginning, from before the beginning of the world. And the goats on his left, Christ quite clearly says, enter into eternal punishment. This will be technically the third time that that notion is repeated inside of this chapter. So we're struck with this again. It really does. Eternity really does come down to each person's relationship with Jesus Christ, with the Son of Man. And it isn't just a matter of lip service, of what we one day say that we did, we coast through the rest of life. We can't wait that way for him. It's not a matter of lip service, but of lives that are transformed by the kingdom of God. Lives that are looking more and more like their Savior, Jesus Christ. People who put their trust in Christ and now live like that actually matters. I was reminded of several passages of Scripture going through, so I want to read a couple of them. The first comes from 1 Peter chapter 4. And listen to how Peter handles this teaching. It's almost as if we hear the teaching of Matthew 24 and 25 ringing in Peter's ears when he writes this to us. 1 Peter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, you see, Peter got it. He didn't say, therefore, look for this headline in the newspaper and this international political condition and then get ready. It's not what he says. He repeats back what he learned from Christ. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or manifold grace. James chapter 2. James just, what Peter puts in beautiful language, James just slaps us upside the face with. James chapter 2 verse 14 goes like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Has the life of Christ actually come out my life? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself does not have, that does not have works is dead. Peter tells us, he says in 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Make sure you're ready. What is my relationship with Jesus Christ? Where do I stand with him? And then in this fascinating conversation between the Son of Man and the sheep and the goats, we also get to ask this question, what have I been doing with the life that he has given me? What am I doing with whatever set of resources the Son of Man has given me? Has I been, have I been living this way or that way? And here's where we go back to the middle of this chapter. Chapter 25, verse 14 And let's listen to Jesus talk about this. The parable of the talents, my Bible says, and the first few verses go like this. For it will be like, remember this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So in this parable, we have a master who goes on a journey, and what he does is he leaves money. He leaves resources with his servants to take care of while he is gone. Again, inside of this parable, we don't know when the master's coming back. We just know that he's given his servants something to do. And in the English, the the word is kind of unfortunate because it it, it taints a little bit the way we understand what's what's going on here. The English word is talents. Uh, The Greek word is really interesting. It's talents, just, just so you know. What the Greek word means is it's actually a weight of money. It's not like a quarter, a nickel, a denarius, or a silver coin. It's a weight of money. And one talent, as people have worked out how much a talent weighs, and then how much a talent is inside of Jesus' day and age, one talent is roughly four years' wages for the average laborer. So you're sort of... Just imagine your middle income sort of wage. One talent is four years of that. You're handed a check given four years of your salary. What are you going to do with it? All in one check, right? This is actually a lot of money. So in fact, one of these servants receives 20 years worth of their wages to manage, another eight years worth and another four years worth. So let's get out of our heads the idea that one poor guy is just sort of standing there holding one little quarter inside of his hands. (laughs) Well, I just got one. (laughs) He got a check worth four years of his salary. What are you going to do with it? Well, he buries it in the ground. Doesn't that seem smart to do? So this is what happens. This is what they're given. And we're beginning to read the story about what they do with what they have received. So let's continue to read in verse 19. Now, after a long time, there's that same image in the first parable as well. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. You think that's who I am? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers in my coming. At my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will be given in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And here it is. And cast the worthless servant out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, this is happy, happy, joy, joy time, isn't it? The master comes and settles accounts. The servants that were given five and two, they have worked well with what they were given, and so they return back to the master five talents and then two talents more. The third servant literally buried their responsibility. They were given responsibility over that one talent. They literally buried it. In Jesus' day and age, that's a common way of handling your money. You'd dig a hole in the ground with a piece of pottery, you'd throw all of it in there, and you'd cover it up. And that's exactly what that third servant did. Buried his responsibility, returned just the one back to the master, and then get this, blamed it on the master. This is who I think you are, and I was scared. So I just buried what you gave me. So here you can have it back. Isn't that interesting? Blamed it on the master. The first two are rewarded, and the other is cut off from the master's estate. What the master is giving to the first two students, he actually, uh, uh, servants, he takes away from the third. Now, as we think this through, we're talking about talents and weights of money and so forth, we need to understand this. This is not primarily about money, though it includes that. It's not primarily about money. It is about what we do with anything and everything God has given us. Here's one of the things that we're learning here, guys. And we're learning it at a critical moment because Jesus is talking about the end of the age and how we should live until then. I have a master who has given me temporary stewardship over some set of resources and some set of gifts. I have a master who has given me temporary stewardship over some of his stuff. It's his. He literally made it. And it's all going back to him. And I've been given temporary stewardship over it now. All I have and all I am is on loan from God. That makes me a steward. 
that makes me a servant of his stuff. Does that mean my bank account? You bet it means my bank account. Does it mean every piece of property that I own or I lease from the bank? You bet it contains all of that. Does it include these five fingers on each hand and thumbs? And does it include these eyes and these ears and this mind and this body? You bet it does. Everything I have been given is on loan to me from God. This is his stuff. What do we do with it? What can we do with what God has given us? This is interesting to me. Because oftentimes inside of our political debate, and you'll hear it in the context sometimes of the legalization of drugs or even of uh, issues surrounding suicide and so forth, you'll hear people say things like, I own my body and nobody can tell me what to do with it. From my perspective, that's false. I do not own my body. God owns my body. This is his stuff. He's handed it to me until he comes back again. What am I going to do with it? Everything is his. The famous passage of Scripture from Psalm 50, verse 10. Everything you see is mine, says the Lord. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Wow. That's just a poetic way of saying, look out there on the mountainside. What do you see? It's all mine. I don't care if you think you own that cow. It's mine. Everything I have and everything I am is on loan to me from my master until he comes again. This can be, I think, a powerful shift in perspective for the believer in our daily lives. Our culture, quite frankly, is run by selfishness and envy. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. You have to allow me to do this. You have to allow me to do this. This is just all selfishness and envy. But the Christian learns to live as a grateful and joyful steward of everything that God has given me, whether it's five or two or one. The third foolish servant lived in fear of his master, and that fear actually turned into spite of his master. And instead of that, we can live in joyful anticipation of the return of our master. We work with what he's given us, and someday he's coming back, and we're going to give all of it back to him and even more. We can live in joyful anticipation of his return. I want to think about that foolish servant for a second. It's not just foolishness. Christ in the parable calls him wicked and slothful, evil and lazy. That servant misunderstood the character of the master. He was afraid, and in fact, his perception of the master was cruel and false. The master had given him so much more than he ever could have taken on his own, but he still believed his master to be tight-fisted and angry and hard to deal with. His master was generous. And so because his view of the master was cruel and false, his life was a waste. He ruined his life. So I want to think for a minute now about the wise servants. And not just the wise servants, but the wise bridesmaids as well. And the sheep who lived their lives the way that Christ would have lived their lives. They took whatever they were given 
and they put it to work for the master. I'm intrigued by the uh, servant who had two. (laughs) The servant who had two returned everything and it doubled everything for his master. And I love the fact that the servant who was given two didn't gripe that he wasn't given five. Why was I given, why did they get five? I got two. And when the person who had five was given even the one more, the person who had been given two doesn't gripe. The griping about what he was given would have been the vice of envy. But him working with what God has given him was the virtue of stewardship. Whatever it is, if we work with it well, it's the virtue of stewardship. This is important in this context for us to hear. The master made us to work. He literally created us to work for him, to glorify him in our work and to find fulfillment in our work. Now, like waiting, when we talk about working, we tend to have this kind of narrow vision in our heads about what that means. It's my nine-to-five job. It's taking care of my house and my kids because it expends my energy. It's a lot of work and labor and toil, and you need to know my manager. You'd know why I'm frustrated with my job, right? We think about jobs, and we think about toil, and we think about expending our effort and our energy, But when I say the master created us to work, it's important for us to understand biblically what we mean by work. And so here's a biblical definition of work. Work is anything meaningful we do that God equips us to do and can be done for his glory, for the help of our neighbor, and as part of the foreshadowing of his kingdom. Does that include whatever gives me a paycheck from week to week? It does. Does that include raising kids? You bet it does. Does that include taking care of ailing parents and grandparents? You bet it does. Anything we do that God equips us to do can be done for his glory, for the help of our neighbor, and is part of the foreshadowing of his kingdom. So God made us to work. God created us to take care of his stuff for his glory. All the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, before the fall, Scripture tells us that God took man, put him in his garden to work it and keep it. You see, the fall did not create work. The fall created toil in our work. We were created to work, to take care of the stuff that God gives us for his glory. I love this idea. Our work is a gift to our neighbor. Whatever God has put in your hands that you're capable of doing, whether that's what gets you a paycheck or it literally is a gift or a talent you have, whatever it is that God's put in your hand to do, when you do it well for God, it becomes love for our neighbor. Jeremiah chapter 29 is a letter that God writes to his children who are in exile. They're in Babylon. They don't want to be in Babylon. They would rather be in Judea and Jerusalem. But here's what Jesus, here's what God says when he writes them this letter. You're going to be in Babylon for a while, so I want you to sink roots, and I want you to start jobs, and I want you to plant vineyards, and I want you to give your kids into marriage. And in verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Our work is actually a gift to our neighbor. The neighbors who are fellow Judeans and the neighbors who are Babylonians. I want you to work and pray for the welfare of your neighbors. 
And then our work, guys, given to God, becomes a glimpse of the kingdom of God. This is exactly what Christ tells us. What we read in chapter 25, verses 35 and 36. When you did this, when you did this, when you did this, you were doing it to me. It actually becomes a glimpse of the kingdom of God inside of a broken world. So friends, the servant of the master can take whatever has been given to them and use it to love God and to love their neighbor. And there is coming a day when their master will return and the faithful servant will be able to take whatever's in their hand, whatever they've done with what's in their hand, they'll be be able to lay it at the feet of their master to rest from the toil of their labor and enter into his joy. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master, the joy of your Lord. Service to Jesus Christ is entrance into the joy of our Lord. Billy Graham famously would quote this often. He was known as the preacher to presidents. He had met not only nearly every president during his career as an evangelist, but dignitaries around the world, celebrities, powerful people, wealthy people. And he'd often be asked what that was like, who he wants to meet next, those kinds of questions. And every time he would famously answer, what I want is to hear the voice of my master say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Friends, let's wait well until Jesus comes. Let's work well until Jesus comes so that when we see him face to face, every one of us will hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray.